Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty, you are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then that your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people. It grass like the ox, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High, I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. 
all the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases, but the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, no one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honour and splendour were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisers and nobles sought me out and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In my life, there are lots of things I do, which I know I shouldn't do, and things that I shouldn't do that I do do. So one example of those is when I go for a Chinese takeaway, I should really say to the person, no prawn crackers, please. The reason for that is that once I finish my meal, I inevitably help Em finish her meal. And then I'm sat on the sofa feeling incredibly full and thirsty because you've had so much salt. So I wander through into the kitchen and then I see the bag of prawn crackers sat there and half a tub of sweet and sour sauce. And I think I'll just have one because they're basically like little puffs of air, aren't they? And they're so tasty when they're dipped into sweet and sour sauce. The thing is, before I know it, I finished off the whole bag and then I really am feeling sick because then I remember that although they look like little puffs of air, they're actually really unhealthy. Another one that I do is I get grumpy when I don't get enough sleep. So I should go to bed at a good time. The problem is that box set's just so good. And the episode's only got 30 minutes left. So I think I'll just watch that half an hour but then it ends on a cliffhanger. So I think, well, I'll watch the first 10 minutes of the next episode. Before you know it, I'm not checking the time anymore. I'm checking how many hours it is until my alarm goes off. Now, sometimes that's how I think about telling people about Jesus, about evangelism. I know it's something that I should do, but I don't do it. I'm afraid of what people will think of me. I'm afraid of saying the wrong thing. I convince myself people don't really want to hear what I have to say. Maybe you feel the same way. I have to be honest, though, if I was sitting where you are this morning and the preacher in his introduction started talking about evangelism, I'd think, oh, great. I've had a really rough week. I'm tired, probably because I stayed up too late watching box sets. The last thing I need now is a 20 minute lecture on making me feel guilty about not evangelizing. As we open chapter four of Daniel this morning, I pray we would see that God's plan is not to motivate us with guilt but with joy, that as we gaze upon Jesus, our hearts would be captivated by him and we would want to share the good news with anyone who will listen to us. We're going to start by taking a closer look at what actually happens in this passage and then I've got three points for you. We're going to look in, look up and look out. As has already been mentioned this morning, the book of Daniel is written during Israel's period of exile. Despite all of God's warnings, God's people turn their backs on him. And as a consequence of their unfaithfulness, they are defeated in battle by the then superpower, the Babylonians, who take some of the Israelites into captivity. The story of Daniel centers on four of these men who are living as exiles in a hostile environment. We see how they remain faithful despite all the hostility that they face. 
But here's what's really staggering about this particular chapter. They not only stand firm, gritting their teeth and waiting for God to take them home, they actively attempt to tell anyone who will listen about their great God. They even tell the tyrannical leader of the Babylonians how wonderful God is. Let's have a look at how this story unfolds. So in verse four, it says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. If this was a Facebook update, it would probably be something like, life's great, hashtag blessed, with that obligatory selfie with the hanging gardens in the background and perhaps a chilled beverage up front. But then we see that Nebuchadnezzar is having trouble with dreams again. And yet again, he doesn't know what they mean. Verse six says, so I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. Now, unlike chapter two, Nebuchadnezzar is obviously feeling charitable because he tells them the dream this time rather than making them guess what the dream is. But then verse seven says, but they could not interpret it for me. So then up steps Daniel. The king explains his dream to him in verses 10 through to 17. He describes this huge tree visible to the ends of the earth, a tree which provides food and shelter for all. But then this messenger shows up and calls out in a loud voice that the tree is to be cut down and cut up. The stump and the roots are to be bound in iron and that's to be left in the ground. The focus of the dream then turns from a tree to a man, a man who's to be left out and exposed to the elements, drenched in dew, who will lose his mind so that eventually in verse 17, the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. Daniel then gives Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation, but it is not good news. Boss, it's about you. You are the tree and God is going to drive you away and cause you to lose your mind until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign Overall, Daniel pleads with the king to repent and change his ways and in the hope that this judgment won't fall on him. But the story then jumps ahead one year and we see that Nebuchadnezzar has not changed at all. As he, look, as he walks along his rooftop garden, he looks out and in verse 30, he says, Is this not the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Before he's even finished speaking those words, God audibly speaks to him. And he basically says, Nebuchadnezzar, I gave you your authority and now I'm going to take it away. Nebuchadnezzar is driven from the people and he's inflicted today with what would be called boanthropy. You'll have to ask Michael afterwards how often that comes up. I would imagine not very often. It's a state of delusion where the person believes they are a cow or an ox. He lives like this for so long that his hair grows wild and his fingernails grow like the claws of a bird. But at the end of that time, he finally acknowledges God and gives God glory. His final words that are recorded in the entire Bible are seen in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he's done is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble so what on earth does all this have to do with us today 
actually quite a lot more than you might have thought. I said in my introduction that this passage is a great example of God's people faithfully pointing people to God, even when they're living in a hostile environment. But before we assume the part of Daniel in this story, let's first consider when are we like Nebuchadnezzar? Point one, let's look in. If when you read the story of Nebuchadnezzar, your first thought is to consider all the people you know who are like him, people who are proud and boastful and arrogant, a little red flag should go up. Before we start looking out for people who are like Nebuchadnezzar, we first need to look in. We need to consider whether we share some of his traits. You see, there's a strange mix in the way that Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed in the Bible. On the one hand, he comes across as an absolute psychopath. But at the same time, he does seem to understand who God is. Look at what he says when Daniel had interpreted his dream to him in chapter two, the dream about the great big statue. In chapter two, verse 47, Nebuchadnezzar says, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. And then again, he sees God and, and then again, after he sees God saves Daniel's three friends from a fiery furnace, he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servant. No other God can save in this way. Imagine you're running a Christianity Explored course and there's someone who's been coming along who wasn't a Christian. But then on the last week, they say to you, God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords and no other God can save in this way. I think we'd assume that that person had become a Christian. Nebuchadnezzar says the right things. But actually, his actions reflect a heart which tell a different story. Acknowledging that God is great is not enough. Knowing the right answers is not enough. This whole story shouts one thing. A relationship with God can only begin when we acknowledge he is in charge. Nebuchadnezzar saw that God was powerful but he just wanted that power available when he needed it, when he needed a dream interpreting. He wanted God, but he wanted him on his terms. Do you know Jesus not only as your saviour, but as your Lord? There's a real tension in the Bible. Jesus wants his people to have assurance of their salvation. He knows that living life constantly doubting if we are saved is not only crippling, it leads to a really ugly kind of Christianity. But at the same time, he expects us to examine ourselves and to ask ourselves hard questions. Look at the words of Paul in his, letter to the, in his second letter to the Corinthian church. This is 2 Corinthians 13 verse 5. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Jesus himself tells us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Now, this is not to say that Christians will never mess up. Until we die or Jesus returns, we will always struggle with sin and sometimes we will lose that struggle. The big question here is, have you been humbled by God? As a teenager, I pretty much lived two separate lives. I attended a Christian youth group where the Bible was taught. Like Nebuchadnezzar, I knew the right answers, 
And I could see that God was great. And actually, I really did believe he was the only one who could keep me out of hell. But the rest of the week, I really lived for popularity. I wanted to be liked. I wanted to, um, I wanted to have fun. And that involved, involved doing lots of things which I knew I shouldn't be doing. I wanted Jesus as a saviour because hell sounded horrendous. But I didn't really want him as my Lord. I wanted God on my terms. Like Nebuchadnezzar, God humbled me. He caused me to look in and see that my whole life was a sham. He showed me that until I accepted Jesus as Lord, he couldn't be my saviour. It was a painful process, and I vividly remember kneeling in prayer and for the first time ever truly repenting. But what then? Like if God's so loving... Why does he want us to put us through something so painful? Why does he have to humble us in such a difficult way? Well, it's because he knows that until we've been knocked down, we can never truly look up. That's our second point. Look up. Look at what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven. And my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honoured and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Nebuchadnezzar had spent his whole life looking down on other people. The reason pride is such a barrier between God and man is when we're looking down at people, we can't look up into heaven. The aim of looking in is not to drown us in our own self-pity. It's to cause us, like Nebuchadnezzar, to look up and truly see the holiness of God, to recognise his glory and his beauty, and to see that there is nothing greater or more valuable in the entire universe. When we truly consider our sinfulness and then God's holiness, we begin to see that we are saved not because we are good, but because God is good. We begin to understand that the only thing we have to boast in is God himself. We start to see that the only way of bridging the gap between our sinfulness and God's holiness is the son of God dying on a cross to rescue his people. Do you see that salvation is not based on your performance, but upon God's grace, not based upon a philosophy, but on a person? upon Jesus Christ. When Nebuchadnezzar was just saying the right things, what he said was vague and impersonal. But look, about, look at how he talks about God in a different way. In verse two, he's not just talking about impersonal signs and wonders. He now says signs and wonders that the Most High has performed for me. Now it's personal. Is your relationship with Jesus personal? The turning point in this story is Nebuchadnezzar being humbled by God. But here is perhaps one of the most beautiful parts of the gospel. He doesn't humble us to leave us on the floor. He humbles us because it's the only way he can lift us into his presence and into his family. He shows us how low we are so then he can lift us to heights we could never have imagined. He adopts us into his family and he crowns us with a crown of eternal life, a crown not based upon our deeds, 
but paid for with the precious blood of Jesus. When you see that our worth comes not from how we perform, but what God has done for us, it changes us. It means we can't look down on other people because we realize anything good we have in our lives is a gift from God and a gift that we did not deserve. It means that I can enjoy the affirmation and praise of other people, but that's not where my identity lies. Instead, my identity is based on who God is rescuing me to become. I'd rather boast about him than take credit for myself. In 2016, I was an armed uh, arm response police officer and I transferred from Surrey to the Met. Now, I knew that transferring was going to be difficult. I just didn't realise quite how tough it was going to be. The tactics used by the Met are slightly different. So transferees had to complete a conversion course. Mine was run by a load of old school Met firearms instructors who really did not like county transferees. And they apparently did not want us to pass. Being on the course meant being away from home for four weeks, bearing in mind that I'd already done a 13-week course in Surrey. Failure meant that I'd be away for at least another four weeks. So I obviously didn't want to fail because I didn't want to be away from home. But actually, what I really didn't want was to fail itself. I knew that if I failed, my old colleagues that I'd left, who now thought I was saying I was better than them, would know that I'd failed. And when I did eventually pass, my new colleagues would also know that I'd failed. A lot of things had changed since I was a teenager, but in many ways, some of the same stuff was still lingering. Deep down, I was still way too concerned with what other people thought of me. And now I didn't just want to be popular, I wanted to be seen as competent. I wanted that much coveted badge of being a good operator. I was putting my worth in what other people thought of me. At the start of the course, all I could pray was, God, please let me pass. I was asking God for something good, but really I was doing it because of sinful motives. Once again, the Lord called me to look in, to see these sinful motives and to repent of them. And then he caused me to look up. As I looked up, I thought I was going to see a God who looked down on us distantly and who put us through difficult things just to teach us a lesson. But what I actually saw was a father who loved me so much that he sent his son Jesus to die in my place. I saw he'd already given me the most precious thing which he possessed. And because of that, he'd given me an identity which could never be taken away from me. Whether I passed or failed this course no longer was such a big deal because I was a child of God and nothing could change that. Looking in can be painful, but if it causes us to look up and truly see God, it will always be worth it. When we finally get that, then like Nebuchadnezzar, looking out won't feel like a burden. It won't be something that we need to be guilt-tripped into doing. It will be a joy. We see that at the start of chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar has been captured with such a vision of God's beauty, he wants to share it. He says, to the nations and people of every language who live in all the earth, he literally wants to tell everybody in the world. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. 
Let's finish by considering our third point. Look out. When we've looked in and we've seen what we're really like and then looked up and seen that God has rescued a people by sending Jesus to save them and not only seen but personally experienced the grace of God, it transforms us. It transforms us to be more like him. And a big part of that means we will look out at the world around us. Nebuchadnezzar's transformation is incredible and God could have done it completely on his own. But he loves to involve his people in his rescue plans. Against all the odds, in a hostile culture, he gives Daniel a heart to look out, a heart which doesn't write people off. Because God doesn't write people off. Let's finish by considering how Daniel hoped, Daniel loved and Daniel was faithful. So firstly, Daniel hoped. Daniel was successful and clearly well thought of by Nebuchadnezzar, but this is not what he lived for. He lived for God. His hope was in God. He built his life around God and at every opportunity, he pointed people to how great his God is. Amongst Christians today, there is a real temptation to build our lives around the same things that everybody else does. Having a good job, having a nice house, having enough money, being comfortable and having good holidays. Sometimes it feels like once we've got those things secure, then we kind of build God around the edges of our lives. We'll give him Sunday mornings and the occasional midweek meeting. And then we wonder why we're not getting any opportunities to share the hope that we have. Perhaps that's because when people, non-Christians are looking in our lives, they assume that we're hoping in the same things that they are. Are we building our lives around Jesus rather than fitting him around the edges of our plans? Are we putting our hope in his promises? In his kingdom, which will never end? Or are we giving too much weight to earthly kingdoms, which like Nebuchadnezzar's tree look big and impressive, but one day ultimately they will be cut down and cut up. The first step to sharing hope with others is fixing our own hope upon Jesus Christ. Secondly, Daniel loved. Now, Daniel had every reason to despise Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had taken him into exile. He, he'd come close to killing Daniel and he had tried killing his three closest friends. But Daniel seems to love Nebuchadnezzar. When he hears Nebuchadnezzar's dream he, and knows what it means, he wishes it was about someone else. He doesn't rejoice in the judgment which is about to fall on Nebuchadnezzar. He pleads with him to repent and change his ways. There is a real tenderness in the way that Daniel speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. Reaching out with the gospel should never be done in a cold or indifferent way. We must love those we are trying to reach. We must want the very best for them. Do you genuinely love those around you you're trying to reach? Are you prepared to show them that love, even if that is costly? Not just seeing them as some project to be worked on, but instead as a friend to enjoy. Are there areas in your life where you can invest in those relationships and reflect the love of God to people who don't know him? Thirdly and finally, Daniel was faithful. 
Now, this is the hard one, isn't it? I actually have a theory that it's not that the other wise men and magicians couldn't interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. It's that they wouldn't. I mean, the dream pretty much comes with its own interpretation at the end. The problem was not in understanding it. The problem was what Nebuchadnezzar's reaction would be when he heard the interpretation. He does not strike me as the kind of bloke who took bad news very well. Daniel could have sugarcoated what the message he gave him. He could have centered on the fact that oh, the stump stays in the ground and I'm sure it will grow back. It will be fine in the end. But he doesn't. Look at verse 27. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. He's just called the most powerful man in the world sinful and wicked. The man who heats a furnace seven times hotter than it was supposed to go to kill three people. The man who caused his own soldiers to die when carrying people to the furnace because it was so hot. The man who cut the king of Israel's eyes out after watching him kill his own son. He's just told him he's wicked. I sometimes think I'll just try and really love people and set a good example. I tell myself actions speak louder than words. I convince myself that is the better way of evangelizing. Now, yes, we must love people in all kinds of ways. We must be generous and kind and we must listen well, but we must do all this remembering that the most loving thing you can do for someone is point them to Jesus. Think of the non-Christians in your life right now. If you don't point them to Jesus, who else is going to? Is that scary? Yes, absolutely. Verse 19 says Daniel's thoughts terrified him. So how is he able to do it? How is he able to give Nebuchadnezzar such bad news? It's clear that Daniel cared about Nebuchadnezzar and he cared about what he thought of him. But most of all, he cared about what God thought of him. Which kingdom are we going to invest in? One which looks impressive, but ultimately is passing away. Or God's perfect kingdom, which starts small and will last forever.